incidents of collisions with airborne foul in order to test the strength of the windshields. It says British engineers heard about the gun and were eager to test it on the windshields of their new high-speed trains. So arrangements were made to borrow the gun, but when the gun was fired, the British engineers stood shocked as the chicken hurtled out of the barrel, crashed into and shat- the shatterproof uh, windshield, smashed it to small bits, crashed through the, console, console, uh, the control console, snapped the engineer's backrest, and embedded itself in the back wall of the cabin. Horrified, the British engineer sent NASA the disastrous results of their experiment along with the designs of the windshield and all the pertinent data and requested suggestions from the United States NASA scientists. After reviewing all the data that the British engineers had submitted to them, NASA was sent a very brief response. They sent a brief response to the British engineers simply with these words, Thaw the chicken. Apparently, they were hurtling frozen chickens. Didn't stop to think they had never saw a frozen chicken in mid-flight. Interesting. Yes, wonder how much the government grant was for that study. Anyway, the point is, as human beings, we are constantly reminded of our tendency to fail to make mistakes. And as a result, we often are, we're often guilty of an additional error in judgment, and that's when we wrongly come to the conclusion that perhaps even God sometimes makes mistakes. And in our ongoing study of the book of Romans, we come to Romans chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to it, because in Romans chapter 9, we clearly find the answer to the question, does God make mistakes? Does God make mistakes? If you recall Romans chapter 8, introduced us to the doctrine of election or God's choosing. And we also learned, as we've read through Romans 8, the final conclusion was that nothing can separate us, those who are chosen by God, from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. That nothing will separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ. And as we look at this and understand, the Bible says that those who are called, God justifies Those he justifies, he sanctifies, those he sanctifies, he glorifies, and it all happens at a strategic moment in time in the life of every individual, and that's the moment that you and I come to recognize what God says about us. To err is human, we all understand it, and we should recognize the fact that God says that all of us fall short of his glory, all of us fall short of his standard, which is a standard of perfection. It's amazing to me how many of us realize and understand that we're all capable of making mistakes. There's not one person here. In fact, I remember the story about a guy who said something like, you know, he never made a mistake. Throughout his 30 years that he was married, he never admitted once that he ever made a mistake. One time he was finally pushed against the wall to the point where he had to own up to his mistake, and he said, honey, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It troubled him for many days as he considered what it was that he said, and he ran back to her and, and he, with, with joy and a, and a smile on his face. He said, honey, when I told you I made a mistake, I was mistaken. Uh, But the bottom line of it is, even then, he made a mistake. So the point is that we're all guilty before God. The Bible says all are guilty, fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, no, not one. And so God says that, you know what, it comes with the human package because we're all stamped sinners as we come into the world. We don't have a chance to be perfect. So as we've read through this, the Bible says that that moment in time where we recognize that and realize because we're not perfect that we fall short of God's standard, that God holds us accountable, therefore we're guilty, we're condemned by God, he says that there's only one option to all of us that's available. The the, the path to forgiveness or the road to heaven is very narrow. In fact, Jesus said many are those who try to enter by that broad and wide gate. You know, there's a way that seems right, the Bible says, to man, but its end is destruction. 
the world we live in today says, you know what, as long as you're sincere, as long as you're trying, as long as you work harder, as long as you're better than the person next to you, as long as whatever it is the contingents are or, 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 uh, or, or the program is, as long as you fit that category, then somehow God has to forgive you. But God says, no, that's not my program. My plan is very simple. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him, speaking of Jesus, they would find forgiveness. They would not perish, but they'd have everlasting life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. We live in a world today that's promoting worldwide religion. It's promoting, you know, one religious system. Let's all just believe the same thing so we can all get along because religious differences separate us and they don't bring us together. But don't ever forget that Jesus said, I came to separate. I came and I brought a sword with me. And the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, separates. There are those of us who have put our faith in Christ and because of that we don't have the same relationship with our family any longer. There are those who have put their faith in Christ and because of that maybe you've lost your job. There are those who have come to faith in Christ and you no longer hang out with your friends any longer because they don't want anything to do with you because now you live differently than what they do. Jesus said, I came to divide. But he also said that in him we find forgiveness. We need to recognize and understand that there is no universal message. There is no universal peace. Only those who adopt God's plan and His program and receive Christ as their Savior are forgiven by God. The road to destruction is broad, but enter into the gate that's narrow. Jesus said, I'm the door, and anyone who enters through me, I, and even I stand at your door of your life and knock, and whoever lets me in and receives me, to them I'll come into you, and you'll be called a child of God to those who believe in my name. We need to recognize and understand that the Word of God is very clear as to how one becomes right with God. And as we look at this, those who He calls, He justifies. Those who He justifies, He sanctifies and glorifies. And it all takes place at that moment in time when you surrender your will to God's will. You've got to do it God's way. There is no other way. It's the only way that there is. It's His program. We don't have an option to come up with one we think is better than that. And so as we go through this, it will also help us to understand everything we've learned up to this point lays a very clear foundation that will help us address the question, well, then does God make mistakes? Does God make mistakes? Because what happens is this. Those whom God has called and chosen, He has justified, sanctified, and glorified. And unfortunately, if you have recognized, as God says, you're a sinner and you've responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, you've become a child of God by believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins, the reality of all of it is, is the Bible says you should be now alive to God and dead to sin. But we all know the truth of the matter is this, that not all of us live like we've been chosen by God. In fact, we see that in Romans chapter 6. We've already outlined that where those who had come to faith in Christ said, hey, what difference does it make what way you live? Because, you know, it's all by faith and not by works. Who cares how we live our life? What shall we say then? Shall we continue just to sin and live like we used to live? And the Bible says, no, how can that be? How can we who have died to sin continue to live like it? How have we who have now become alive to God live as if we're still dead to God and alive to sin? It doesn't make any sense. But we all realize that we fail and we fall short. You know, it's the old Christian bumper sticker. I'm not, you know, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. But the reality of it is, is that God still wants us to live like we've been forgiven. We're to reflect the glory of God to people around us. As people see the redeemed life of a Christian, they should want to know what's different about your life than my life. What do you have peace about, assurance about, confidence about? Why don't you struggle sometimes with the same thing that, that I struggle with or that you used to struggle with? What's the secret? The secret is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's God's plan. That's His program. It doesn't get any simpler than that. But sometimes we don't all live like we've been saved 
from God's wrath and condemnation. And so we begin to ask the question, then, does God make mistakes? Does he make mistakes because when he chose you or he chose me or he's chosen anyone who has received Christ and we walk from him and live in a life that's not worthy of our calling or in a way that's not pleasing to God, the world looks at us and says, well, then God must have made a mistake in choosing you because you're not holding up your end of the deal. Well, who said we have an end of the deal? But the reality is this, does God make mistakes? And so, did God make a mistake when He chose you or chose me is illustrated by what we're going to see in Romans chapter 9. So if you've got in front of you, in Romans 9, Paul uses the nation of Israel to reveal four attributes of God that will answer this question, does God make mistakes? So let's go through them and we'll look at them one at a time. In Romans chapter 9, we start with verse 1. Paul writes, I'm telling you the truth in Christ and I'm not lying to you. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. It says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but, when there, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. <clears throat> for through the twins, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In Romans chapter 9, in these verses that we just read, Paul introduces us to this first attribute of God. It's an important one for us to understand, and that's this, the faithfulness of God. In, in Romans 9, 1 through 13, he outlines God's faithfulness, specifically as it relates to the nation of Israel. Now, I'm going to warn you up front that this chapter is a review of God's faithfulness throughout history and is such is argued from a historical vantage point. Therefore, many of us Gentiles, uh, you know, much of what we read is going to be new to us. It's vital, it's relevant, it's important. But what we need to recognize is, is that the original reader of this particular letter, as, as Paul was addressing the Romans, specifically he was talking to and addressing Jewish readers. They understood their history. They understood what had taken place as God had dealt with them throughout human history. And what Paul was trying to do was use that historical approach of don't ever forget how God has dealt with us from the very beginning and realize that he's not changing. God says, I am not like man that I would change. I'm not like man that I would lie. In God, there is no darkness at all. And we can trust him. He is faithful. What we've seen about God in the past, what we understand about God in the present, and what he reveals about himself in the future is consistent, trustworthy, and reliable. So he gives us a historical overview of how he's dealt with the nation of Israel so that you and I who are not of the nation of Israel, those of us who are not Jewish by heritage, can look and say, well, if God dealt with the nation of Israel this way, we can also trust that he will deal with you and I in a similar manner because it has to do with the character of who God is. So as we go through this, notice in verses, uh, 
uh, 3 and 4, or actually in 4 and 5, he gives them a quick history lesson. Remember he says, the Israelites, or those God has chosen, belongs to the adoption of sons. Israel is the only nation in the history of the world that God called his son. He says that he was given the adoption of sons, the glory. God revealed his glory. If you recall to Moses on Mount Sinai, the glory of God was revealed in the tabernacle as the, as the Israelites journeyed throughout Egypt and as they journeyed throughout the promised land or to get to the promised land through the wilderness, the glory of God was revealed to them and, and, and dwelled with them. The Bible says that they were given the covenants and the giving of the law. The law was given to them, the temple service of worshiping God, the promises that God made, the Father speaking to the patriarchs, and specifically also the Christ or the Messiah was given to the nation of Israel. And what that meant very simply is that through the nation of Israel or through specifically the promise that was made to Abraham through Isaac and through his descendant, that God would save the world through that line or that lineage or genealogy. Jesus Christ came unto the Jews. Read John chapter 1. But the Jews did not receive him. In fact, they rejected him and they crucified him. They put him on the cross and they put him to death. They did not receive him. And it's critical that we understand the history because, you know, as we look at how God chooses, it's going to be relevant that we understand, well, did God make a mistake by choosing Israel? Because Israel never embraced the Savior. When Jesus came into the world, they weren't embraced by, by the people of, of Israel. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 2, back a book. And we're going to look at a very exciting message that was delivered to the Jews from the very beginning. And don't ever forget that the gospel, the Bible says, was to be given to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the outermost parts of the planet. And from that standpoint, Paul also said in our book here in Romans, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Recognize the chronological or the importance of it to the Jew first and then to the Gentile world. God came to the Jews, delivered his message of salvation, sent Jesus Christ to them. They, re they rejected him, and the world then, the rest of us, praise God, were now in line to be able to receive the same message that was delivered unto them. And that's the history lesson that we see taking place here. So in Acts chapter 2, notice in verse 22, this great sermon that was preached. <clears throat> Peter, taking a stand, said, Men of Israel... Listen to these words. So he was talking to the Jews and he said, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. And God raised him up. He raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And as we see the prophecy or the word of God that the Jews had in their possession clearly explains exactly that God did as he said he was going to do. He said, I, will always, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also <clears throat> will abide in hope because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. He says, Brethren, I may, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. The Jews were trying to use that prophecy as it related to King David and that wasn't the case because Paul, Peter clearly said, Hey, listen, David's bones are still with us today. He can't be talking about David. Who's he talking about? 
It says, And so because he was a prophet, knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. He looked ahead, speaking of David, and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, speaking of the prophecy, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured forth. He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David whom ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thy, thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, think about this. You're, you're, you're sitting there, you're standing there, and you're listening to this. And what Peter is saying is that, you know, God fulfilled his promises. God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do. God was faithful to, to fulfill his promise to Isaac, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, and the descendants of David, that he would send Messiah into the world, the Savior of the world. Jesus was called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the bottom line is that God did everything he said he was going to do. But the people rejected him. They rejected the message. They rejected the gospel. They rejected Christ. Don't we live in a world that's so similar to that? God tells us exactly what we need to do to get right with God. It's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves, but we've got to believe God's plan that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way to the bother but through Him. But man comes back and says, I don't like that plan. You made a mistake when you came up with that plan. I'll come up with my own plan. I'll work my way into heaven. I'll give money. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop smoking. I'll stop swearing. I'll, I'll do whatever I think I have to do. And then you've got to accept me the way that I am. And God says, that's not the way it is. It's my way or the highway. And the highway, in this case, leads to hell. Now, can you imagine you're standing out there and you're listening to this and, and he says, but you killed him. You put him on a cross. You put him to death. You set him up with false charges and you brought forth false witnesses. The whole thing was a fiasco from a human perspective. It wasn't judicially sound at all. The only claim that they had against him was he claimed to be God, which he was and is. They put him to death by the fact that he claimed to be God. Jesus was railroaded from a human point of view, but it was according to the predetermined plan of God. Man didn't do anything that God didn't know in advance and allow to take place. Now, what's fascinating is, stop and think about this for a second, because you and I are just as guilty as them. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Now, when you listen, though, to the fact that the Jews were st standing there, sitting there listening to this, they were indicted, they were guilty. They recognized what was said was true. They realized the wrath of God was upon them for killing Jesus. And the only response they had to that was this. Now when they heard this in verse 37, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what must we do? What do we got to do? We're in deep trouble. What do we have to do to be saved from the wrath of God? What do we got to do to be saved from God's judgment? Don't you see all of us who are guilty of sin and fall short of God's standard should be pierced to our heart and say, what do I have to do to be made right with God because what is being said about them is true of me. I'm guilty as well. And I want you to listen very carefully because this is the heart of the message that God wants man to hear. It says, and Peter said to them, repent. Repent. 
Change your mind. Repentance means change your mind. Change your mind about what? Change your mind about who you think Jesus is. If you think Jesus is a good teacher, if you think Jesus was just some prophet, if you think Jesus was some religious leader that lived in the past in history, if you think Jesus is anything less than God's chosen one, his chosen means by which you and I will find forgiveness, the Bible says you better change your mind. That's what it means to repent. If you still think you can work your way to heaven, the Bible says change your mind about that way of thinking. Repent. And what? It says, And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is very simple. God says we're guilty. He says when you recognize it, what do you got to do to get right with God? Repent. Change your mind about what you thought you had to do prior to that and understand what God says. That you must be baptized as far as God says. And the baptism he's referring to is not water baptism. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you and I respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, the Bible says at that moment in time, we are regenerated. Titus 3, 3 through 5. We're regenerated by the work of the Spirit of God. That God causes us who are dead spiritually to become alive spiritually. We're baptized according to the Holy Spirit of God. And the Bible says we receive at that moment in time the Holy Spirit who now lives within the heart of the believer. That God's laws are written on our hearts now, not externally, but internally. That the Spirit of God as He comes into a person's life is a down payment of the promises of God. God has given each of us who have come to faith in Christ the Holy Spirit of God to reside in us as a down payment. That one day He will fulfill what He says. That absent from our body will be present with the Lord for God's Spirit shall return to Himself and along with Him comes us what a wonderful truth that is and he says that for the promise the promises for you and your children and for our all who are far off as many of the Lord our God shall call to himself listen and with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying be saved from this perverse generation so then those who had received his word were baptized and they were added that day to the kingdom of God about 3,000 souls did everyone who hear those words repent? Did everyone who hear those words respond to the finished work of Christ? No, but to those who did respond, to those who did repent, to those who did receive Christ, the Bible says at that very moment in time they were added to the kingdom of God, to those who believe in His name. Not all responded positively. And we realize that's the case even today. Not all will respond to the message. Not all will receive Christ as their Savior. Not all will repent about what they think about Christianity or Jesus Christ or God's program. Not all will do that. But the guarantee is this. To those who do, hey, we're children of God at that moment in time. We're born again. The Spirit of God now lives within us. And all of a sudden, we're convicted about things that we used to do outside of Christ that never bothered us before. And it's a wonderful way to live, that we're now sanctified. We begin to become more like Jesus in the way that we live our life. So when the world sees us, it reflects what? The glory of God. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told his disciples, including those of us who have trusted Christ, that we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. And as, as men see our good deeds, they will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We don't get all the praise and glory, but Christ does for what he's doing in and through our lives. So as we look at this and begin to understand that God's choosing of the nation of Israel was very simple. Back in Deuteronomy, if you've got your Bibles and want to look at it with me, chapter 7, notice what he reminds them very simply. He reminds them simply of this truth. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. He reminds the nation of Israel 
he says very simply, for you are a holy people. Meaning what? There's nothing in and of themselves that's any good. They were, t they were chosen by God and separated for God's purposes. That's all the word holy means. It means that we are taken by God, we are separated for His purposes, we're set apart or set aside, and therefore we become holy because we're being used by God for His purposes. Why were you and I, who have come to faith in Christ, saved by God from the wrath of God? So that we would be taken out of the, 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 the sea of humanity, so to speak, put onto another plane so that we could become salt and light and become holy for God's own purposes, used by God, to be used by God to help those who are still over here see that there's only one way to find forgiveness, and that's through Christ. That's what it means to be holy and set apart. So the nation of Israel is told that they are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the earth, God looked down and chose them. And he says, the Lord didn't set his love on you, nor uh, choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. For you were the fewest of peoples, and that's not why he chose them either. That was just his argument to help him see. I didn't choose you because you were the most, and I didn't choose you because you were the fewest. I chose you because I chose you. But because the Lord loved you. I loved you. That's why I chose you. And kept the oath through which he swore to his fathers. He's saying, I'm, I'm faithful to fulfill my promises. I told your fathers that I would do this, and I'm doing what I said I would do. What a wonderful thing it is to know the character of God is faithful to His Word. It says, The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the what? The faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now go back to Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> God is faithful. I want you to notice, no matter what men do, no matter how men respond to His Word, it is God who is faithful. Notice in verse 6, what the accusation is this. Well, somehow God must have made a mistake, or somehow God's Word is wrong. And the reason that we believe that is why? Because Israel didn't respond the way that man thinks Israel should have responded. The world looks and goes, well, God's plan for salvation, if it's just through faith in Christ and not all the world's responding that way, then somehow God came up with a bad plan because if it's desire that all should, should be saved and not none should, should perish, then He should have came up with a way that everybody would be saved. That somehow there's something wrong with God and God makes mistakes. But the Bible says in verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. I want you to notice something. <clears throat> when man fails, it's not God's fault. From the very beginning, Satan has always cast doubt upon the character and the trustworthiness of God. His character and his word. Think about it. God's word said, thou shalt not eat of the tree, right? Satan comes along and says, surely God didn't say that. It must be God's fault. He didn't say that. He didn't mean that. Somehow you misunderstood. Oh, here's the one that we use today. You misinterpreted that passage. You didn't read that one right. Really? See, it's always man who's kind of coming up with the reason that God made a mistake rather than man saying, hey, maybe we're reading this wrong. Maybe it doesn't matter what all of us are doing. If that's what God says, we've got to submit to His will, not our desires. Now, that'd be an interesting way to live, huh? That's not the what we do in this world. We go, God must have made a mistake. Surely that's not it. And I talk to people all the time and says, well, I interpret the Bible one way and you interpret it another way. 
said, really? But we can find a whole bunch of passages we can agree to agree that that's how it should be interpreted. The only passages we disagree on are the ones that we're usually guilty of sinning against. Duh! Fire the frozen chicken. You know what I mean? It's amazing to me. And then church and churches are no better because what happens is you take a pastor who's known for preaching the word of God and then he doesn't personally obey it. He falls into sin. So everybody comes along and says, you know what? We've got to stop preaching the word of God. That must be the problem. It must be the word of God that's a problem. Wouldn't it be refreshing? And I'm not surprised, though, that that's man's reaction because that's always been man's reaction since the very beginning. When Adam sinned, what was the first thing that he did? He blamed his wife first. And when that didn't work, then he blamed God. They said, hey, you know what? I was just under the tree taking a snooze. I wake up, my side hurts. There she is. She's standing there naked. What do you expect me to do? She says, eat of the tree. I'm like, wow, you know what? I want to have peace around the house. So I just went and got again. That's the kind of stuff that you get in the marriage retreat. So you got to have to account for that. But, what, but it wasn't like, oh, he didn't immediately say, oh, sorry, Lord, my bad. What did he do? He blamed everybody he could blame. God didn't buy into any of that. He held them responsible. See, when you look at Romans chapter 9 and we consider how God chooses, notice two things. First of all, God didn't choose Israel by natural descent. Notice in 6 through 10, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God's word doesn't fail. God's word is reliable and trustworthy. They're not all of Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. Notice what he's saying. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean that you're saved from the wrath of God. If that was true, Peter wouldn't have told him at Pentecost in Acts 2, which we just read. If that was true, he wouldn't have said, hey, you got any problems? You don't have any problems because what? You're a descendant. You're a Jew. You're a descendant of Isaac. Don't worry. God's got you covered. That's not what he said. He said, you better repent. You better call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from the wrath of God. He didn't say because you are of Jewish ancestry that, oh, you are covered. Nor does he say to any of us today who come from Christian families or Christian backgrounds where your mother or your father or your grandparents or an aunt or uncle or friend or whatever has come to faith in Christ, nor does he say to you, hey, oh, you're covered, your family's in. Every one of us have to come to Christ individually. It's not of natural descent. You're not excluded because you're not white or black or red or green or yellow, and you're not included otherwise. Every human being is looked at as a person before God who has to repent of their sin and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. He goes on and talks about not of human merit. Now let me explain something to you as we go through this. This is really important. Another history lesson which the Jews clearly understood, and that is this. It says, the word of promise in verse 9, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Remember in our study throughout the book of Romans that the day that God believed, that that Abraham believed God, it was reckoned unto him as righteousness or he was justified. What did he believe? He believed that he and Sarah would have a son and God's promise would be through Sarah, Abraham, and the son that God would give to them. Notice that? The day he believed that promise of God, it was declared unto him as justified before God. He believed the word of God. Okay, But we know from history that Abraham didn't always trust God. Abraham thought, well, it's taken too long with Sarah, so I think I'll use one of Sarah's maidens, Hagar, and have a child through her. And I'll just help God along with the process. 
he doubted the word of God. So he introduced another element that confuses people even to this day. Hagar had a son. His, his name is Ishmael. Sarah ultimately would have a son, and his name was Isaac. And the differentiation is very simple. Ishmael was the oldest, and according to Jewish tradition or custom, the oldest was always chosen, the chosen one. God says, I didn't choose Ishmael, I chose Isaac. I chose the younger one, not the older one. Now, you look at that and go, well, that, why did God do that? Well, and then he explains to us, when we look at not of human merit in verse 11, and he also talks about the fact that Isaac had twins. Esau and Jacob and God chose Jacob the younger one and not Esau the older one now from a human perspective we look at it and go well it's easy to understand why God didn't chose Ishmael because Ishmael was not the one who was promised as a descendant of Abraham and Sarah it was Isaac so we look at that and go oh now we understand why Isaac was chosen but now we got a problem because God now tells us he chose Jacob and not Esau and he chose them before they were born, and they were the product of the same mother and father. And we go, what was God doing here? And he explains it. He says, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we read through that and we kind of go, well, God, you know, hated Jacob, I mean, he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. But you've got to understand that that quotation is from Malachi that came after thousands of years of history. And, and uh, the Edomites and Esau and his descendants were godless people who turned their back on God. They hated God. They hated his plan. They hated everything about him. And so the nation was looked upon as one that God hated that nation for what they did. God does not hate individuals. God loves people. And he's demonstrated his love. And yet when you and I were sinners in rebellion against God and running from him, he sent Christ to die for you and I as individuals. God hated the nation because they rebelled against him. But God loves people. And the history had passed. But the problem that we have now is this. He chose Jacob over Esau before yet they were even born and they never did anything good or bad. Now you look at that and go, why did he do that? Here's why. Because he did it according to his choice. In verse 11. According to his choice. That's what he wanted to do. So the purpose of God according to his choice would be fulfilled. And I also want you to listen and, and put that away for a minute uh, downstream here. Because notice what he said. Before they did anything good, or did, did they, God chose him for his purposes. It had nothing to do with human works whatsoever. Whether poorly or done well. It was based on God's choice. I love it once. A student once asked... Uh, Dr. Griffith Thomas, he said he was having trouble with this passage. He couldn't understand why God hated Esau. How could God hate Esau? He didn't understand he was talking about the nation. Well, how can God hate Esau if Esau didn't do anything good or bad? Dr. Thomas said, I'm having a problem with that passage too, but mine's a little different problem. He says, what I don't understand is, why did God love Jacob? Think about that. Why did God love Jacob? Why did God love you? I look and go, I don't know why God loved me. 
Why did God choose me? Why did God call me? When I was in rebellion against God, I wanted nothing to do with God. I was living like hell and thinking I'm enjoying every minute of it. Why did God love me so much that he sent Christ to die for me? Why did he demonstrate such love for me when I was in rebellion of him? See, that's the thing that's just mind-boggling to me. And the question arises at this point as we look at this that has to do with this. Look at verse 14. Because man is going to ask this question. And the question is a very simple question, and that's this. Isn't that unfair? Isn't that unfair of God? And it introduces his righteousness. Now, I mean, be honest for a second. It's like, well, isn't it unfair that God would choose Israel out of all the nations of the world? Especially when they didn't live up to what you would think they would have lived up to with all the promises that they were given. And isn't it unfair that God chose Isaac and not Ishmael? It wasn't, it wasn't Ishmael's fault that Abraham tried to help him out with this plan. Certainly Ishmael didn't do anything wrong at that point in his life. Isn't it unfair that he picked Isaac? And, and what's up with Jacob and Esau, man? I mean, why, why, why did God pick Jacob and not Esau? I mean, it, doesn't, it sounds like God made a mistake. It was like they were saying, God, but don't you know how it's supposed to be done? You always choose the oldest, and you don't choose the youngest or the younger to serve the older. That's not how it's supposed to be done. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. And I contend to you that what God's trying to do for all of us is understand that, you know what? God does things his way, and either we submit to his will or we're left out. See, God is righteous. And the question that they ask is a very simple one, and that's this. Hey, you know what? What shall we say then in verse 14? There is no injustice with God, is there? May there never be. Here's the thing that God just, man, he just nailed me on as I've been studying this and looking at this. And that is this. How many times in my life do I find myself questioning the authority of God? I mean, let's face it. How many times have you found yourself going, God, I don't like that. I don't like that plan. I don't like that commandment. I don't like that rule. I don't like that regulation. I don't like that principle. Whatever it is that we go, it's like, I, I don't like that. And the reason I don't like it is because I want to do exactly that. And you say, I can't, and that it's wrong, and I don't understand it, and so I must be misinterpreting it. So I think what I'll do is just go ahead and do it, and we'll see how it all turns out. Man, you know how many, I mean, it's like, it's like if I could just share with you how many people that I talk to, and even looking back on my own life, how many people I talk to who don't want to submit to the will of God in their life, go down a road that's, its end is destruction, when there's bits and pieces left, they call me and say, what can I do to fix this mess that I'm in? And you just want to say, look, the next time you come at a crossroad in life of whether to trust God and believe Him or do what you want to do that's in opposition to God, I'll just suggest to you, trust God and believe Him. But right at this point, it's a mess. And I, there's, there's pieces everywhere, and I'm not really good at jigsaw puzzles. You know, God can put it all back together again, but man, I'll tell you what, when He does, there's scars and there's wounds and there's pain and there's suffering and there's anguish and there's everything that God doesn't want us to have to deal with for Christ came to give us abundant life. But don't ever forget that God will judge sin. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. And there's nothing any of us can do to somehow or another prevent that from taking place. Believe God. Trust God. You look at this and go, man, you know what? Is, is God not righteous? Now look what he does. 
says, what shall we say? Is there, no, is there no injustice with God? Is there? No, there's not. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Oh, 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 I want you to do this. Not this. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But I want you to do, I want you to do this. I want you to, today, tomorrow, sometime, uh, read Exodus chapters 32 and 33. For the history lesson is taking place in our midst. And if we don't know the history, we won't understand it. Because he is quoting Exodus 33:19. Read all of chapter 32. Read chapter 33 up through verse 19. Because this is the culmination of God's argument to the nation of Israel. And that's this. Quick overview. Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. While he's away, everybody down below says, Hey, Moses has been gone too long. And they go to Aaron and say, Hey, you know what? Let's make a God who we can see and we can worship. Let's create a God in our own image and likeness. So Aaron, being the political leader that we have found to embrace in our country, um, says, is that what you want me to do? And they said, yes, it is. And they said, okay, then that's what I'll do, and I'll lead you. All right, so anyway, um, they make this golden calf. They make the golden calf, and while Moses is away, they make this golden calf, and, and the quotation is this, and the nation of Israel rose up to play. The word rose up to play indicates they had a full-on party, drunken, sexual, orgy, out of control, no standards. They went crazy, just like all of humanity does when they think God's not around. So what does man try to do? If we can get rid of God, we can play. And somehow, we're not going to have any consequences for it. It's great. So let's just convince everybody God doesn't exist. We're just a bunch of ooze that crawl out of some other junk and we've created ourselves in our own image and our own likeness. We can do what we want to do when we want to do it. We don't have to answer anybody. And if anybody tries to say there's a God or a standard and tries to hold us to it, we'll just kill them too. Because there's no standard. Wow. Tell me that's not the mess that we're in today. So anyway, they rose up to play. Now, here's the deal. Moses comes down and he just blows a gasket. He can't believe what's going on. And this may be more fun than reading it, but I want you to read it anyway. He just goes crazy, and he smashes the Ten Commandments. And, and, and so there's that whole picture and scene that goes on. But, but here's what happens. So God says to Moses, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses says, don't do that. If you have to, kill me instead. Wow, and I think, why, isn't that the heart of Paul? He says, man, my heart is breaking because my brethren are lost before Christ. They haven't come to faith in Christ. They're lost for eternity. If there's some way, God, that I could take, my, take their place... If you will just condemn me and sentence me to hell and allow everybody else to live, that'd be wonderful. But God doesn't work that way. Moses said the same thing, but God doesn't work that way. But it indicated his love for the people. But here's what God said. He said, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses says, no, no, don't kill them all. And so God basically says this. All right, then I want you to raise up some godly men and I want you to go out and you're going to kill 3,000 of them. 3,000 people at the party, were killed on the day that God judged them. Now, you sit here and you go, that's not fair. Because who got killed and who got to live? That's not fair. Hey, you know what? You know what fair would have been? He killed them all! They all deserve to die. That's what fair would have been. But you know what? Because of God's righteousness... All are condemned because of God's mercy. Many were spared. Do you understand the difference? It is something that I believe that people just can't grasp. 
It just doesn't make sense to us. Several years ago, we were doing a retreat, a couple's retreat up in Santa Barbara, and the theme of the weekend was grace. Okay? I'm reading through Genesis 6, and the Bible says of Genesis 6 that God regretted that he had created man, and he wanted to wipe everybody out. And then it says in verse 9, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I argued very simply and asked the question, why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? People began to read. And it says that Noah was a righteous and a blameless man. And the argument was, because Noah was a righteous and a blameless man. And I said, no, wrong. And they said, that's what it says. I said, that's what it says. But what do you think that means? Well, it means that he was a righteous and blameless man. I said, well, was he perfect? Well, no, as was revealed very clearly, Noah was not perfect. He was a righteous and blameless man in his dealing with other human beings. But before God, there is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There was nothing in and of Noah of himself that God called because there was something good and redeemable in him. He was lost and he was just as lost as everybody else in that culture that God wanted to destroy. But because God found favor upon him and chose him and brought him out of all the rest of the sea of humanity, it was God's mercy and his grace that he was demonstrating, not his righteousness because no one in his family deserved to die just like everybody else. And you say, Chuck, that, that's, not, that's not right. So what? What? It's not right. Read. Read example after example. Another example is Job. Job was a blameless and righteous man. Was Job perfect? Absolutely not. Job didn't trust God. Job questioned God. In fact, Job even questioned God, do you really know what you're doing? Read Job chapters 38 through 42 where God just lambasts him on the fact that he questioned him at all. The sovereignty and choice of God that's made. We need to recognize and understand that God does what he does according to his character and according to his sovereignty because he's God and we're not. And it's only by His grace and His mercy that any of us can come to faith in Christ. By His righteousness would all be destroyed. But notice what He says, and I love this quote, because it's from Exodus 33, 19. For He said to Moses, Moses, listen to me. I'll have mercy. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll do what I want to do because I'm God. All i got to say is this. When you fall on the compassion end, I don't know about you, but there isn't a day that I get up that I'm not reminded of the fact that I'm praising God. I'm praising God that He loved me and He demonstrated that love and He sent Christ to die for me and that He's called me, that He chose me, that I can receive that mercy and that compassion and that grace. And I praise Him every day. Man, that's something you can't take for granted. When you recognize the fact that God can, could equally just have condemned you for all of eternity and that would be righteous to do so, but it's by His mercy and His compassion that we are saved. That's a wonderful truth. See, but we just don't, you know, we, we don't get it. We're always looking for, we're always looking for something. We're always looking for, you know, some way to understand how God chooses. God walks throughout humanity and he just chooses whom he wants to choose. And he looks around and he just chooses somebody and he calls them and he picks them out. And, and we just sit here and we go, I don't know what's going on. But like you, with your hand to your face. Here, take this. Get, have, have some lunch today on us. All right? And now you're all sitting there going, oh, it's not fair. Why didn't you choose me? Right? Y'all going like, why didn't you choose me? And I'm just like, hey, because I didn't want to. <laughs> you know what I mean? And y'all sitting there going, well, what's so special about him? Hey, you know what? God looks upon humanity and he says, you know what? I have got my elective purposes. And they will be fulfilled in the way that I do what I do. 
And all of us sit and we say, that's not fair. But you know what? How can any of us accuse God of not being fair? God does what he does because he's God. I want you to simply think about that. Noah was chosen not because he was perfect, but because God chose him. Job was chosen. Abraham was chosen. King David was chosen as a vessel of God's righteousness, as an instrument for God's purposes. The disciples were all chosen. We go through all of human history and every one of those people that God chose were flawed. They were not perfect in any way, shape, or form. They weren't even close to being perfect. But God chose them. And when God reaches out to you and I, He chooses us on the same basis because of His grace and because of His mercy. There is nothing good in any one of us as we've already seen. God's choice is based on who He is. God's choice, as you read through the rest of the chapter, is also based on the fact that He's just. Very simple argument that He lays out. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why'd you make me like this, will it? The potter doesn't have any right over the clay. Hey, God made us. Who are we to say how God should do what he does? It's very simple. He had his purposes. He does what he wants to do. Read verses 22 and 24 and the prophecy of the word of God. You know, God wouldn't have been righteous. God wouldn't have been just if he didn't do what he said he was going to do. And that's the graciousness of God and the reliability of his word. As we look at this and realize, the last thing I want you to look at is the fact that God in his grace, look at verses 30 through 33, and we'll close on this. What shall we say? I love this. It answers those questions. The grace of God. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which comes by faith. Notice what he's saying. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, didn't arrive at the law. What he's saying was, Israel was trying to live a life that was pleasing to God and have God forgive them or find grace in their life, but they didn't find it. The Gentiles lived like hell and they found righteousness. And everything was turned upside down and the Jews were going, that's not fair, man. They're not abiding by the customs and by the laws. They're out there living any way that they want. And Jesus went to them and they repented and, and they received Christ. And because of that, they were forgiven. And God says, exactly. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. There it is in a nutshell. By grace you are saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and not of works. It's a gift from God so that none of us could ever boast. The man that received that gift certificate today did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. All that he did was receive it. He could have rejected it. He could say, hey, I don't know you, I don't want that. Could have done that, but he didn't do that. He received it. It's by faith. Faith in what? In the very word of God that says you can't be right with God any other way but by believing the word of God. By faith. By faith. It is by God's grace through faith that we find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. See, the Jews didn't find it. They were working their way to heaven. The Gentiles found it. They weren't working towards anything. They just accepted the forgiveness of God that was offered through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why he goes on to say, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Isn't that beautiful? He who believes in Jesus Christ will not be disappointed. Men and women, there is no other way to be made right with God than by through faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work of his alone on the cross. Jesus Christ and him crucified and the power of his resurrection. Have you come to faith in Christ? For there's no other way under heaven, no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Father, we just thank you for your word because your word is reliable. You are faithful even when we're faithless. 
you are righteous, you are just, and you're gracious. And God, and how you dealt with the nation of Israel is just an indicator of how we as your people understand that you will deal with us. Faithful, righteous, just, and gracious. God, we just love you and we praise you and we look forward to what you're going to have to teach us again as we get into Romans 10 next week. In Christ's name, amen.